Tremendous. Well, I can't believe that you've come. I mean, this is tremendous. You understand I'm actually speaking at, at this. <laughs> All right. So um, thank you for coming. Um, they asked me what would I like to speak on for uh, this session, and obviously there's endless numbers of arrows to draw from a quiver uh, that would be helpful to address a group that's predominantly pastors or elders or teachers. And I have been so helped personally in in my study of church history. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said the most important thing that a minister can know, apart from the Bible and theology, is church history. And church history provides us not only instruction as the greatest men down through the centuries have addressed the issues of their day, and we have seen how they exegetically navigate through those passages why they taught what they taught, and it instructs us in how they handled the Word of God. Uh, I learned more theology when I was in seminary in my church history classes than I did in my theology classes because I was being taught by the Reformers. I was being taught by the Puritans. I was being taught by the greatest astute theological minds down through the centuries. But the other value of studying church history is I will use the word inspiration and motivation. As we see, the enormous price that these great men of God paid to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I have studied church history, and I I would be an amateur church historian, um, I want to speak to you on a particular group of men that you know as you come to this this session who that is. And it's a group of men known as the Marian Martyrs. That is, those who were burned at the stake by Bloody Mary, Mary I, in the years 1555 to 1558, 1554 to 1558. And they were heroic men. They were were the leaders of the English Reformation. And I love the era of the Reformation, and I love the German Reformation, and the Swiss Reformation, the Scottish Reformation, the French Reformation. But the English Reformation, because I speak English, most of you speak English, um, it's very close to home, and it's it's very dear. And so these these stalwarts of the faith paid an extraordinary price to preach the Word of God, and I think they're worthy of our attention uh, today. Um, In my years of being a pastor, and I've been a pastor for something like 40 years, I have faced many challenges. I've been run out of one church. Uh, it, it, it's a very tempestuous experience to, to, to go through that. And the men in church history who have made a heroic stand for the truth, who did not budge in their hour in which they contended for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, they have emboldened me to stand firm, to not sound retreat, to hold my position, to advance to the front lines. 
And everyone whom God has ever used in church history, without any exception, are men who paid a great price in their ministry. They made heroic sacrifice in their ministry, and they faced great opposition. They faced great resistance. And I know for us to gather this many men in one room at one time, there would have to be many of you who are facing great challenges in your ministry where God has placed you. I mean, we all face opposition when we hold forth the banner of truth. But there are times in our ministries, whether it be in a local church or whether it be in a seminary, in which we find ourselves in stormy times. And my prayer for you would be that this study of the Marian martyrs would pour concrete into your backbone and would give you a new sense of stability and to hang tough in in tough times. Uh, When I used to play football, I remember one sign that hung over the the door as we would leave the locker room to, to, to take the field, and the sign just simply said, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And there's a lot of carry over of that into ministry. Uh, One church that called me to be their pastor, and it ended up being the church that ran me out uh, as their pastor, Uh, they said, "How, how do we know that you would stay? Our last pastor only stayed for a couple of years. How do we know that you'd stay? And I related to them that experience from sports. I, I said, I, I have, I'm, I'm battle-tested, and I've, I've learned how to drop anchor and, and stand in the grace of God. Well, it's examples like these men, and I really wish I had three or four hours to be able to, to walk through the exploits of these men. Maybe one more comment before I dive into this. As you well know, as a teenager, Jonathan Edwards wrote 70 resolutions that he reviewed on a weekly basis that was something like a moral compass for his life. He was 18 and 19 years old, serving an interim pastorate role in what is today downtown New York City in Manhattan. And as he wrote those resolutions as a teenager, resolution number 10, resolved. When I feel pain, and he's referring to ministry, when I feel pain, to think of the pains of martyrdom, that has hung around my neck. And even as I was run out of a church, which is a very painful experience, I can honestly say to compare my experience to the death of the martyrs, I've never had a bad day, that even my most difficult days of ministry have been nothing when I compare them, not to a Sunday school picnic, but when I compare them to the death of the martyrs, it puts everything into right perspective. And Edwards, as a young man, knew that, and you need to know that. You've never had a bad day in ministry. Your worst days are nothing 
compared to the death of the martyrs who were strapped to a stake and burned alive in front of their congregation, a stake that would be driven into the ground in front of their church, and to literally be shish publicly. I thought of that as my twin sons drove the getaway car that last Sunday as I left the church. I've never had a bad day, not compared to this. So I hope that this can be an encouragement to you. I hope that this can bolster your your staying power uh, where God has placed you to serve Him. So I'm an outline preacher. I I, I need an outline to speak. I can't even order a meal in a restaurant without an alliterated three-point outline, the drink, the dinner, the dessert. I just made that up, okay? (laughs) Kind of works, though, really. (laughs) So, these are in the form of questions, just to help us plot our way through this. And question number one is, who was Bloody Mary? Mary was the daughter of Henry VIII. Yes, that Henry VIII. And she was the daughter of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. And she was Queen of England from 1553 to 1558, to give you a historical landmark. And just to remind you, to be the Queen of England at this time means you are the head of the church. You are the Pope of England. You are by title the supreme head of the church. You are by title the defender of the faith. And so the history of the English Reformation, it hinges and swings with the changing of monarchs, whether they're Catholic, whether they're Protestant, whether they're halfway in between. And it was Henry VIII who established the Church of England. And he established the Church of England simply because he could not have his marriage annulled, and so Rome would not give it to him, so he just pulls the entire Catholic Church of England out of the Catholic Church and just announces that he now is the supreme head with Parliament's approval of the Church of England. And so after Henry VIII was Edward VI, who was the teenage king, he assumed the throne of England at age nine, he died at age 15. He was intensely, thoroughly Protestant and, and Reformed in his, in his doctrine, but he dies at age 15, and he is, followed to the, he is followed by Mary I to become the third head of the Church of England. And Mary I proved to be a devil with a blue dress on. And she proved to be the worst nightmare that the Reformers and the Protestants could ever have. J.C. Ryle writes of Mary that from her infancy, she was a rigid adherent of of the Roman church. She was a papist of papists, conscientious, zealous, bigoted and narrow-minded in the extreme. 
And so under Mary's reign, 1553 to 1558, number one, mass was restored in the church. Mass had been abolished under her half-brother, Edward VI. And so now the Church of England, as they take the Lord's Supper, it is a mass which is blasphemous. Protestant worship was removed. The Reformers were denounced. Foreign Protestants were banished from England and sent back to Europe. Protestant leaders were deprived of their offices of pastor or minister or professor, whether it be in a church or in a university, they were all stripped of Protestants. And many Protestants were forced to escape for their life. John Knox was, was one of those. John Fox was another one. And the old statutes against Protestant heresies was reinstated. It was a, a, a grisly time. And Mary's advisors pushed her to go yet even further that we will burn at the stake everyone who does not adhere to Catholic dogma in the Church of England. Special commissions were appointed to examine and to prosecute Protestants. And the only choice that they had was to recant their beliefs or, be, or to be put to death by fire. And so Mary, Mary I, well earned her name, Bloody Mary. So that's who Mary was, Queen of England, head of the church, defender of the faith. Second, who were the Marian martyrs? They were among the strongest Protestants living in England. There were 288 at a minimum who were martyred. One was an archbishop, Thomas Cranmer. That means you're over all the ministers in all of England. The archbishop answers only to the king, and you preside over every pulpit and over every church in all of England as the archbishop. So, among the Marian martyrs, one was an archbishop, four were bishops, meaning you preside over an entire city. So, there, one was uh, Nicholas Ridley, who was the bishop of London, and he is now over every minister and over every pulpit and over every church in all of London. And at this point, there are no other churches. I mean, there are no denominations. I mean, you, you're either in the Church of England or you're nothing. And then there were 21 clergies who were put to death, pastors, preachers. Fifty-four were women. Four were children. And the rest were businessmen who were common laborers. And they were from virtually every occupation in all of England. I, I, I have the list here that I compiled, and it would take too long to to, to read this list, but just to give you a flavor and a feel, they were preachers and bishops and rectors and fishermen and butlers and barbers and butchers and surgeons and upholsterers and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, who 
stood with their pastor. And out of the rank and file members of the congregation were willing to adhere to the doctrine that was being taught from the pulpit. And it wasn't just preachers who were put to death and burned at the stake. It, it was also businessmen. It was also housewives. It, it was also children who were all in with Christ. And they were willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice for what they believed. There was no easy believism going on, or relatively little. Third question, when were they martyred? It was over the last four years of Mary's reign of terror. In 1555, 71 were, were burned at the stake. In 1556, 89 were burned at the stake. In 1557, 88 were burned at the stake. And in 1558, 40 were burned at the stake. J.C. Ryle said, quote, the faggots never ceased to blaze while Mary was alive. That there was a smoldering faggot somewhere in England at any given point in time where true believers were being put to death. Who is to say what awaits us here in America? Fourth, why were they martyred? These martyrs were not put to death for any criminal crime that violated God's Word. They were not rebels against the queen. They were not anarchists against the monarchy. They're not burning down buildings. They're not taking over city halls. They're not trashing the country. They're not thieves. They're not murderers. They're not drunkards. They're not men or women of public rioting. They were among the holiest, godliest men and women in all of England. They were among the most learned men of their day. Many of them are graduates from Oxford and from, from Cambridge. Many of them were among the best Bible preachers in all of England. They were put to death because of their commitment to the Word of God, and they were willing to go to the stake for it. They were martyred because they refused to believe the dogma, the Catholic dogma of transubstantiation. They denied the Catholic Church position of the real presence of Christ in the body and the blood as the elements were being taken. They refused to believe that the real blood of Jesus was in that communion cup, which they did not refer to as a communion cup, and they refused to believe that that is the real body of Jesus. They refused to believe that Jesus is still being sacrificed in heaven and His blood is flowing from His wounded side from heaven into this communion cup, and as you drink of the cup, you are drinking of the actual very blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. For them, it was an outrage and a blasphemy. They, they were not martyred for secondary issues. They were not martyred over forms of church government. 
They were not even martyred over who's to be baptized and by what mode. They were not martyred over eschatology and and some nuance on the second coming. They were martyred for gospel issues. The person and work of Christ. They went to the stake for Christ and Him crucified. Fifth, where were they martyred? (laughs) They were martyred throughout England. There's hardly a main city in which martyrs were not burned. And the object was to strike terror into the congregation's heart. For many of them, they were martyred in front of their own churches. They, they were not taken off to some secret place out in the country and never to be seen again. I mean, it's not like in Russia where suddenly the minister's gone and we never see him again. No, it, it's, a, it's a public execution. It's like a public electric chair, a public gas chamber. And it was intended to be so public. They were martyred in London, in Oxford, in Gloucester. They were put to death for their faith in 37 different cities. And I've got the entire list here. I'm not going to take the time to to, to read through it. And many died in prison before they could even get to the stake, that they couldn't even survive the prison experience. And so the numbers would go up even more than that. Number six, who was martyred first? If you have known me or know of my preaching, you know that in the front of my preaching Bible, I carry the picture of the first Marian martyr burned at the stake, February the 4th, 1555, John Rogers. I carry in the back of my preaching Bible a wood carving of him being strapped to the stake. And whenever I take people to London on church history tours, the first place I go Number one on the list, I go to Smithfield. I go to where John Rogers was burned at the stake. It just means something to me. I just want to stand with the man of God. I just want to stand where a man of God once stood. And so John Rogers, let me tell you a little bit about John Rogers. He was well-educated. He was a brilliant student and theologian. He's a graduate of Cambridge, Pembroke College. And when he graduated, he was so recognized for his brilliance that he was immediately hired for the new college at Oxford called Christ's College. Later, John Owen would preside over Christ's College. And they were recruiting the very best men. And John Rogers was one of those first ones. He was ordained to be a Catholic priest. All of the Reformers were originally Catholic priests. And in 1534, after a couple of years of pastoring, he leaves England and he goes to Europe and he becomes a chaplain for what is known as the Company of the Merchant Advisors. Yeah, go ahead and get that. It's hard for me to think while you're doing the plastic. Thank you. It was like a boarding house, like a large hotel 
for English businessmen who were conducting business affairs in England, buying and selling. And it was in this very house that William Tyndale, who first translates the Bible into the English language out of the original language, at least the New Testament and major portions of the Old Testament, is doing his work in the back room of this very house. It's in Antwerp, which is today in Belgium. And Rogers, by the strange providence of God, ends up there, and he meets William Tyndale. And William Tyndale, it is believed, led him to faith in Christ, because it's at this time he's converted. And he renounces the heresies of Catholicism, and he embraces Protestant doctrine which is code phrase for Bible doctrine. And he has this brilliant mind, and so he assists William Tyndale in, the, in finishing Tyndale's work. Tyndale will be arrested the next year, 1535. I wish I had time to tell you the story of Tyndale's arrest. But suffice to say, after 10 years living undercover anonymously in England, after multiple attempts to find Tyndale sent from the king of England himself, and they all proved to be futile. After 10 years of these massive searches, there's a young man named Henry Phillips who was given a massive amount of wealth by his father to take to London to put into deposit. And on the way, Henry Phillips gambles and he squanders and loses the entire estate. He's a desperate man. And so the church leaders in the Church of England, at this point under Henry VIII, they find out about this, and they say, we will repay the entire vast estate to you, and your father will never know if you will go to Europe and find... William Tyndale, and have him put to death. So Henry Phillips, through different connections, ends up in this very house where these Protestant-friendly businessmen are living, and William Tyndale is doing the translation work in the back, and where now John Rogers is, and Henry Phillips leads... Tyndale out of the house to go for a walk. The other businessmen said, we, we, we don't trust Henry Phillips. There's something about him that's not right. And there was a certain naivety about Tyndale, and Tyndale allows himself to be befriended by Henry Phillips, who leads him on a walk down an alley, which is all a setup. He comes in behind Tyndale, points at his head, and the officials come out. They apprehend him and take him to the Valvorde Castle where he will be held for 500 days and then burned at the stake, hung by the neck, and gunpowder put around his torso and blown up into so many pieces there's nothing left to bury. Well, John Rogers has been working side by side, looking up words, helping him figure out which is the best English word to translate this. Tyndale at this time is working on the Old Testament 
And how this all happened, we don't know because a lot of this is under just the cloak of obscurity, but John Rogers ends up with Tyndale's work. He no doubt gathers it up before the officials can come to confiscate it, escapes into the night. And he begins the process of trying to finish what Tyndale had not completed. What Tyndale has translated to this point is very interesting. He has done Genesis through Second Chronicles in the Old Testament. He's done the New Testament three times. He's made some four to 5,000 edits from his original 1526 edition. He makes a second edition, 1534, then a third edition, 1535, the year that he is arrested. And he's just working his way through the Old Testament. He has to be self-taught in Hebrew. There's not one Hebrew teacher in all of England. He had to go to the University of Wittenberg and learn with the faculty there and try to teach himself Hebrew. He was proficient in eight languages, by the way, Tyndale. So he does Genesis through Second Chronicles, and he skips all the way to Jonah and translates Jonah into English, Tyndale does, because he wants every preacher in England to preach 40 days and London will be destroyed. (laughs) 40 days and Oxford will be destroyed. 40 days and Gloucester will be destroyed. He wants those bullets into the barrel of every English-speaking preacher, Tyndale does. There was another man working alongside of Tyndale, whose name was Miles Coverdale. And Coverdale also has access to Tyndale's work, and he immediately has the Coverdale Bible translated. So he would have to do, after Second Chronicles, have to do the Hebrew poetry section and all of the prophets except for Jonah. Here's the limitation. <laughs> Coverdale doesn't know Hebrew. So all he can do is translate from a German Bible and translate from the Latin Vulgate and translate from some Swiss commentaries what he thinks the Old Testament translation should be, and quite charitably, it's just an inferior translation of the rest of the Old Testament, nowhere near accurate or at Tyndale's level. That's the Coverdale Bible. Well, John Rogers has this, and he too goes about the work. But Rogers was brilliant. And so Rogers takes Coverdale's work, and he becomes an editor, translator, and comes through and fixes the Coverdale Bible. And it becomes known as the Matthew Bible because it was published under a pseudonym, Thomas Matthew, to protect his own anonymity. He marries a woman who in the family, they're printers, and this is printed now in Paris and and, in the Matthew Bible, and it's a far more pure translation. So John Rogers now produces the first time in history an entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, that is translated from the original languages. And John Rogers knew enough Hebrew to be able to go in and and do that work. 
Even when the King James Version is translated, it's estimated that some 80 to 85 percent of the King James Version is just simply Tyndale and Rogers' work, that a committee of some 40-plus men could not improve upon what, what these brilliant Oxford-Cambridge graduates were able to produce. So that, that's John Rogers, and he produces the first study Bible. And he has detailed commentary in the side margin, and it becomes actually the first English commentary on the entire Bible. John Rogers, that's pretty good. And he writes introductions to the Bible. He writes introductions to the New Testament, to the Old Testament, and some of the individual books. And Tyndale had already done 25 of the 27 New Testament books, introductions, and the Pentateuch, etc., but John Rogers now becomes a major player in producing an English Bible. Once he finishes that, he goes to Wittenberg, Germany. He goes to the University of Wittenberg and enrolls so that he can be better taught theology and original languages. And he studies under Martin Luther, and he becomes uh, a close associate friend of Philip Melanchthon. Well, in 1547, Matthew's Bible, 1537, 1547, Henry VIII dies, and he is succeeded to the throne by Edward, Edward VI, who is the Protestant king, the teenage king. And when John Rogers learns of this, John Rogers realizes it's safe for me to return back to England and to carry on my ministry there. So John Rogers returns back to England, and the English reformers are elated to have Rogers now back in our midst. We know who you are. You're the editor of the Thomas Matthews Bible. You're you're a prolific preacher, and so he's put into very strategic uh, pulpits in, in England, and he, he pastors St. Margaret's and St. Sepulchre in, in London. It'll be in front of St. Sepulchre, basically, will be where he'll be burned at the stake in Smithfield, which is a subdivision of London. And in 1551, the Bishop of London, Nicholas Ridley, names him to be one of his chaplains and to be a preacher at St. Paul's Cathedral. St. Paul's Cathedral is if you've ever been to London, if you've ever been to St. Paul's Cathedral, it, it, it is an extraordinary Christopher Wren cathedral. I mean, during World War II, as Churchill is in his bunker beneath the city level, the street level, he would wake up in the morning and ask one question, is it still standing? Is St. Paul's still standing? It is an architectural masterpiece. And John Rogers is placed there to preach the Word of God, and and he's made a divinity lecturer at at St. Paul's. So he's both preacher and teacher. But in 1553, Edward VI dies unexpectedly. And you know the story how he tried to make Lady Jane Grey his successor, and she was queen for nine days until Mary, in a display of power, comes marching into London 
and she overthrows Lady Jane Grey, and she becomes now the Queen of England. She is a staunch Catholic, as J.C. Ryle says, to an extreme, and she assumes the crown to the dismay of the Reformers who have been put into place. I mean, one of Edward VI, he had six royal chaplains, one of whom was John Knox. And, and he dispensed John Knox throughout all of England to go preach the doctrines of the Reformation to, to the major cities of, of England. I mean, it was a glorious day for those who were a part of the Reformation in, in England. It's like the kingdom has come. And then but in but days or weeks, the whole thing shifts. He dies. Edward. Knox has to flee to the continent. Ends up in Geneva. But John Rogers, he doesn't flee. John Rogers has no reverse gear. John Rogers keeps preaching. He keeps preaching publicly. He he preached at St. Paul's that upholding the, quote, true doctrine taught in King Edward's day, he upheld the true doctrine taught in King Edward's day and warned against, quote, popery and idolatry and, and superstition, close quote. And the Catholic message is nothing but heresy. There's not a drop of saving grace in Rome, only damnation. And so Rogers becomes a marked man. He's arrested on August 16, 1553, and summoned before the authorities to give an account for himself. And this is what he said, I was asked whether I believed in the sacrament to be the very body and blood of our Savior, Christ, that was born of the Virgin Mary and hanged on the cross, is that body the real body of Christ? I answered, I think it to be false. And this brilliant sentence, Christ corporally, meaning in His body, is only in heaven. So Christ cannot be corporally in your sacrament. I mean, think about it. He's in a resurrection body. It can only be in one place at one time. And that place is at the right hand of the majesty on high, at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. He's not in 18,000 different places. He is by His Spirit, but not by His corporal body, which is a glorified, resurrected body. So Rogers was condemned. He can find a house arrest. And all of his ministry positions were, were stripped. And in 1554, the new Bishop of London, which is no longer Nicholas, uh, Nicholas Ridley, it's now the new Catholic appointed by Mary, Bishop of London, sentences Rogers to Newgate Prison. Interestingly enough, Newgate Prison is still there where he was contained for a year. In December 1554, Parliament reenacted the penal statutes against 
preaching without a government license. On January 22, 1555, only two days after this statute was reinstated, Rogers was swiftly brought back before the commission and swiftly brought back before the authorities for two issues, for denying the Christian character of the church of Rome, which is in reality a synagogue of Satan, and for denying the real presence in the sacrament. So, the golden date, February the 4th, 1555, Rogers is to be taken out of the Newgate prison and brought to Smithfield, which is an area within London. And one of the sheriffs confronted Rogers and challenged him to revoke his abominable doctrines of believing salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and to revoke his, quote, evil opinion, close quote, of the Mass. And a pardon was offered to Rogers if he would renounce his confession. But he answered, that which I have preached, I will seal with my own blood. I mean, how will you and I respond in the day of trouble? I mean, will we say, well, we're all just saying the same thing, just in different ways. It's just how you nuance it. No. Rogers has a conscience, and Rogers has convictions. And he says, as an imprisoned captive, that which I have preached, I will seal with my own blood. You know, Adrian Rogers once said, the problem with preachers today is nobody wants to kill them anymore. (laughs) Rogers was not one of those preachers. And so the sheriff responded, then you're a heretic. And Rogers held firm, and he says, that will be made known on the last day, the day of judgment. And the sheriff chided, I will never pray for you. And Rogers answered, but I will pray for you. And with barely enough time to dress himself, he was hastily led out of his cell and paraded through the streets on foot to Smithfield. The execution site was within a block of the church where he preached, the church of the St. Sepulcher. And the crowds began to gather as they paraded him through his parish, church members turning out. And along the way was his wife and ten children, one of whom was born while he was in prison, whom he had never seen. And he was denied being able to stop and to speak a word of farewell to his wife and children and was led hastily to the stake, and as he marched, he marched quoting Psalm 51, a psalm that he had translated himself in the Matthew Bible. The immense crowd lined both sides of the street. And at this point, no one one knew how an English reformer would respond 
when put into the, the, the fire of adversity like this? I mean, will they go through with this? Will they hold their convictions? Will, will they vacillate? How is this going to play out? And the public could hardly believe that these reformers were actually willing to go to the stake publicly and be burned alive for their convictions. And as he approaches the stake, J.C. Ryle comments, quote, they rent the air with thunders of applause, close quote. His own church members are cheering him on and clapping, stay strong in the faith, go all the way. That day, the French ambassador, Antoine de Neoye, was present to observe. And some have believed by tradition that Mary was present on the second floor observing what would happen. And the French ambassador writes, this day was performed the confirmation of the alliance between the Pope and this kingdom, referring to England, that now the Pope and the Queen are married in convictions. An alliance between the Pope and this kingdom by a public and solemn sacrifice of a preaching doctor named Rogers, who has been burned alive for being a Lutheran, which just simply is code phrase for sola fide, justification by faith alone. But the ambassador says he died persisting in his opinion, meaning conviction. At this conduct, the greatest part of the people took, took such pleasure that they were not afraid to make many exclamations to strengthen his courage. Even his children assisted in this, comforting him in such a manner that it seemed as if, listen to the end of this sentence, as if Rogers had been led to his wedding. These men did not die whimpering and whining and complaining, shriveled up like a question mark. They stood erect like an exclamation point and held firm their convictions and had great peace in their heart as God does give a dying grace to His martyrs. It looked as if He was being led to His wedding. John Fox, writing in Fox's Book of Martyrs, gives us a little bit fuller picture of this. Fox interviewed eyewitnesses. Fox went into public accounts, researched, and compiled as accurate a reproduction of what took place. I'm in the possession of a Fox's Book of Martyrs that's about this thick in my study that was printed while Fox was still alive, before the Catholic Church took out all of the court proceedings 
and the grisly behind-the-scenes work, we now have a little English version. Fox went to great lengths to research this. And this is what John Fox recorded. The fire was put to Rogers, and when it had taken hold both of his legs and shoulders, he was one feeling no smart, no pain. Washed his hands in the flame as though he was washing his hands in cold water. And after lifting up his hands unto heaven, until the devouring fire had consumed them, most mildly, this happy martyr. What a a contrast in words. This happy martyr yielded up his spirit into the hands of his heavenly Father. A little before his burning at the stake, his pardon was brought. If he would have recanted, but he utterly refused... He was the first martyr of all the blessed company that suffered in Queen Mary's time, that gave the first adventure upon the fire, his wife and his children being eleven in number and ten able to go, and one sucking on her breast, met him by the way, and as he went towards Smithfield, this sorrowful sight of his own flesh and blood, meaning his wife and children, could not move him away from his convictions, but that he constantly and cheerfully took his death with wonderful patience in the defense and the quarrel of Christ's gospel." Close quote. You know, after reading this, How's someone speaking at an elders' meeting going to scare us? I mean, don't trip over your skirt. I mean, you're ready to leave the church. You're you're ready to go get a paper route or something. Just whining. Or some little woman on the back pew of the church, some blue-haired woman on the back pew of the church thinks you're too loud when you preach, or you, you, too, you preach too long, or, or, or whatever, and, and you just go home shriveled up in a, in a, in, in a fetal position. Man, you, you read stuff like this, boys become men. I mean, you grow up. You, you mature. I mean, you get on their wave, and you, you ride the wave with them, and it, 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 it instills courage and, and boldness and convictions and willing to sacrifice, where, where, you see, where, where you see men make real commitment and back it up with real sacrifice. We, we need this. We need to be discipled by John Rogers. And, and, and men like Hugh Latimer and Thomas Cranmer and Nicholas Ridley and, the, and these other martyrs, we need to sit at their feet and for their, their influence to drip down upon us. So why is this martyrdom significant for us today as preachers? And I just realized I, I have another 30 pages of notes. <laughs> And I need to finish, land the plane here immediately. 
And I haven't even gotten to Latimer and Ridley who were strapped to the same stake and, and burned at the same stake at, at Oxford. Master Ridley, play the man. We shall light a fire this day in England that I trust shall never go out. And Thomas Cranmer, who is taken to the stake and he puts his right hand into the fire first because it was this right hand that, that had, had, had written his recanting of his Protestant beliefs. No, this hand will be burned first because it, it turned its back upon Christ. I mean, we haven't even had time to get to, to these luminaries. Now, let's just wrap this up here with Rogers. Why is this martyrdom significant for us today? Because the days in which we live are fast becoming a day not unlike the day of Queen Mary. Government intrusion into our religious liberties is rapidly on the rise. Hate speech, being unable to speak out. In England, yesterday, yesterday they passed, you can't even pray silently before an abortion clinic. Are you even believing this? You can't even pray silently. Stand on the street corner. Preaching against certain sins may very soon well be outlawed, and the right to speak out against doctrinal heresies of other groups may soon be taken away. Listen, you and I believe enough things that are so controversial, such as the exclusivity of salvation in Christ alone and that every other religion is a fast track to hell. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the end of death. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is salvation in no other name. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself a ransom for all the testimony born at the proper time. Listen, you and I are dangerous. We know enough and believe enough to shake things up. And who knows what other infringements may await us. And the examples of men like like John Rogers needs to be constantly in front of us to remind us there are hills worth dying for and dying upon. And we need to decide right now, not and wait until the knock comes at the door. We need to decide right now. Where is the line in the sand? And what am I willing to die for? And in reality, a man who's not willing to die for certain truths is really not worth his living. So that was the first martyr. If you'll come back next year, I'll finish this. <laughs> <laughs> As an old preacher once said, give us some men who know the truth. (laughs) God bless you. You're dismissed.